have the privilege of sharing with you from John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn there, please? Um, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. And while you're turning there, I'm going to open in prayer one more time. John chapter 20, verse 19. Just be still for a moment and allow the peace of God to enter our, our soul. Our Father, we thank you that you are here to speak to us. That Jesus, you walk in the midst of your church. Holy Spirit, you are the one who takes residence in our hearts. You don't just leave us to try to work out new ethic and morals. You're here to transform us by the renewing of our minds and the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you do that now. There's not a man in this room that is able to accomplish what you can accomplish in our lives. Not a woman in this room that can accomplish what you can accomplish. And so we pray this, Lord, together in Jesus' name. Amen. It says in John 20 that... In the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is God's word. I've really struggled with this text this week. My very dear friend, Dave Lomas, assigned this text to me uh, earlier on, and I was excited when I first received it. Our church was going through the Easter tide season of resurrection, so it was powerful, it was fresh to me, and I was excited for it. But as I sat with this text, I started to realize that commentators say that this text is perhaps the most disputable text in all of the Gospel of John. And so I text Dave early in the week, and I said, it's a pretty hard text. Wish I had Thomas, which is what you're going to be going through next week. And then I closed by saying, just saying, but I misspelled saying, and so it said, just Satan. <laughs> and I was like, oops, I meant to say just saying, but maybe it is Satan that gave it to me. And nothing, no change, nothing. But the truth is, as I wrestled with this text more, I started to realize more and more that I was in need of this text. There's something deep in here for me, and I think that there's something deep in here for all of us, actually, because in this section, we see how the resurrection can actually make us into a community that's experiencing healing in the deep places of our own emotions, like fear, like the fear of missing out, like the fear of what's to come, like death feeling like it's at the door, like faith feeling like it's really far or God feeling like God is really far. 
But it doesn't only make us uh, healed. It makes us agents of healing, maybe. Broken, wounded healers within our world. I'm going to look at that in three movements. And the first movement that we see here in this little story is the breaking in. The break-in. It says in verse 19 of John 20, In the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together, like we are here. With the doors locked, though, because they were extremely afraid. They're afraid of the Jews because behind locked doors, the followers of a fledgling faith community are sitting in hiding. They used to sit behind locked doors arguing with one another about who was the greater leader, about who had achieved a greater morality, about who was a a stronger follower of Jesus no longer. Death has changed all that. A few days earlier from here, Jesus has died. And with him, their hopes have maybe died too. God doesn't always work in the ways that we think he's going to work, does he? The older that you get, you begin to realize that more and more. And now they perhaps argue in whispered tones things like, what are we going to do now? Could it be that Jesus actually showed himself to women? That's completely against the Greco-Roman world of that day that Jesus would make women the first responders, the first eyewitnesses. Could it be? And they're arguing with one another. Think about the the movies that you might see where the the people that are arguing in the room, what are we going to do now? Whose fault was this? Whose fault was it that put Jesus to death in the first place? And their fear is only strengthened by every knock on the door, every shadow that passes by the window. Because they know that they face a similar fate as their leaders. The Jewish religious leaders, they're out to get them. They have external fear. Death is at the door. Faith feels really far. But it's in this moment that Jesus breaks in. Doesn't say how, just says he appeared. We don't know how, if he just slowly unlocked the door, came through the, I don't know. But you might be skeptical skeptical about a risen Jesus. But guess what? So were they. The resurrection was a problem for them. It's a problem for our rationalistic minds as well. But as Dostoevsky says in his, of his character um, Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, sometimes change only happens when life replaces logic. This man at the end of his novel, he's putting everybody in this neat category, judging who they are, putting life in this neat category, and at the end of his life, he's locked up in prison for a crime that he should never have committed, and life just replaces logic. And when the risen Jesus appears, life transcends logic. Christianity does not maintain that Jesus was merely a good teacher or a good man. It believes that Christ broke into the world. And here, while they're hiding, Jesus Christ doesn't just break into the world. He breaks into their own locked rooms. And what happens as a result? They're freed from their deepest fear. In their place of hiding, they're stricken with fear. External fear, remember, fear is at the door, but maybe also internal fear. You know the kind of fear that you face, that you feel, when you let down somebody that you love? The fear that you feel of what's going to happen now. And these men that are sitting in this room, they've let down the one they love. They all scattered at the time of the death of Jesus. And now they're wondering, they're sitting here, Jesus appears, and if Jesus Christ has beaten death, obviously he can bring 
uh, a retribution that's far worse than any Jewish leader can possibly bring. It's the risen Christ in their midst. But notice the words of Jesus to them in their deepest fear. He says in verse 19, he comes and stands among them and he says, peace to you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced now. This is the first miracle after the resurrection of Jesus, bringing peace to individuals who peace is far from them. And when, he, when they saw him, Jesus says again, peace to you. What is peace? When we think about peace, we think about something that's sort of this tranquil emotion when you're in downward dog or like warrior pose number two. It could be. That's part of it sometimes. But this peace is different. This is a peace that Jesus gives unlike the world. It's an inner peace, a wholeness, a shalom in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of chaos. And Jesus comes to his disciples and gives to them the forgiving love of God. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't judge them and say, why didn't you stand up for me better? Why did you all leave? He comes to them and he confirms his choice of them. He confirms, you're mine. You still belong to me. You're my child. And they rejoice. Why? It's because when Jesus enters our locked spaces of life, life transcends logic. The love of God gives way to the peace of God. See, when we're scared, when we're frightened, don't we also lock ourselves in? Don't we also lock up our own emotions so that we only show what's on the outside? We're only showing our winning side. But Jesus comes to each of us through these locked times and says, peace to you. He comes to us through our emotions. He comes to us in our fears. What about emotions you carry right now? What you fear letting in? What you fear exposing Jesus is coming and saying I want to give you a peace that goes beyond what you understand has Christ broken into your lock spaces in life that's what it means to be a Christian see virtually all of us when we come to Christ we come to Christ in certain areas but we still have these locked places I guarantee that each of us at some level truly do not believe that I can't do anything fruitful apart from Jesus doing it within me. And then slowly, over the process of time, Jesus comes and continues to work his love and his peace in our life, always breaking into unknown places. All of us are in need of this breaking in. He doesn't just stop there. He begins not just to break in. He then begins to fill them up. This is one of the most oddest examples in history and why it's disputed. He comes to them and it says, verse 22, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in my mind, I, I, I was questioning, what does this look like? I wanted to sit, put myself in the position and the characters of those who are sitting there in that room. What does Jesus do when he says, receive the Holy Spirit and then breathe on them? Does he do like, I, in my mind, it's like this Nacho Libre experience where he just blows like chips on the, <sighs> receive. <sighs> I don't know how it works. But the, 
point is that Jesus is not just breaking into the room, into their locked, hidden places to give them a personal peace. Jesus is giving them a peace for them to extend to the world. Jesus is making them a community of healing for the entire world. But how? In order to do that, they will need a a spirit that's outside of themselves. They'll need the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus comes in and he blows his spirit upon them. Why? Well, what do you do when you see somebody drowning in water and they can no longer breathe? I nearly drowned in water in El Salvador while I was swimming. That's another sermon, another time, another story. What you're hoping for at that time is that somebody can come and breathe breath into your lungs because you need life built up in you, filling your lungs. And that's the point here. John's gospel is all about the recovery of creation. John's gospel is the story of Jesus Christ recovering humanity. From chapter 1, it says that in the beginning, like Genesis, there was Jesus Christ creating all things. He was in the beginning. And right up until the resurrection, John is revealing that Jesus' life is the completion of the original creation. And that with the resurrection, it's the start of a brand new creation. And now, in breathing on the disciples, Jesus is breathing new life into his followers. Just like in Genesis chapter 2, where God takes the dust of the earth after creation, and he breathes his breath into the dust, filling it with life. That's what Jesus is doing here. Just as Yahweh breathed his breath into clay, he's now saying to his followers, I'm giving you new life. See, to be a Christian is where Jesus Christ enters into our locked places. We have this paradigm shift about who God is, and then he begins to breathe his life into us. We move from death to life. It's not about, as one theologian says, making bad people good. It's about making dead people live. All through the Old Testament, you see this kind of, this picture of God breathing his life. You see it in in Elijah when a little boy dies and, and Elijah, the prophet, the representative of God, goes and lays his body atop of this dead boy and breathes into him and he comes back to life again. Or in Ezekiel, chapter 37, a picture of Israel when there's dead bones and God calls the wind to come from the four winds and the breath of God fills these dead bones and makes them live. The point is that Jewish mystics call this the cosmic kiss. And they refer to it as the process of filling the void where the breath of God animates and sustains life. And the truth is that Each of us carries within us some emotional or relational or spiritual void. Each of us is desperately looking for a cosmic kiss. Each of us is desperately looking for a sense of a purpose, a sense of why we're here, a sense of maybe success or or some form of enlightenment. We do it in our jobs or we do it in relationships. All different ways we're looking for the cosmic kiss some existential breath to fill our life. And sin is simply where we intend to find that kiss or to fill that void outside of God, outside of the one who can breathe life into us. Obviously, there's reckless ways we do this, but there's also very religious ways, very moral ways we do this. 
not long ago, I was reading C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia to my daughter. And uh, if you've never read the book, here's a spoiler alert, Aslan the Lion dies. So, um, of course he does, because he's a picture of Christ in that story. And he sacrifices his life to save Edmund. And Edmund in this story is a traitor. And in Narnia law, called Deep Magic, it demands the blood of every traitor. But Aslan offers his life for Edmund's life. And it seems just when all hope is lost that Aslan sacrifices his life on the stone table. And at that moment, Lewis says that there was a deeper magic still, a magic that the white witch wasn't aware of. This white witch is the embodiment of evil. And the book says her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time, but she, if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness, the darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation there. You see, she would have read about a magic that if there's a willing sacrifice in the place of the traitor, then that person would be freed. And so Lewis uses this this term. He says, the white witch has the power to turn creatures into stone, but when Aslan rises from the stone grave again, he goes back and begins to turn death backward. That's what the resurrection is doing, and that's what the Spirit of God is doing. And there's this scene in Narnia where he goes to the white witch's castle, and he begins to blow upon every statue that's been turned to stone in the courtyard, and it comes to life. And I just want to read you a quick snippet of what it says of one of the characters. Aslan starts with this stone lion, and it says, As he blew upon this lion, a tiny streak of gold began to run along its white marble back then. It spread then. The color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stoned, the lion shook his mane and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living air. And then he opened his great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And then it says that Aslan moves from statue to statue, breathing on all of these stone statues. And it says everywhere the statues were coming to life, and the courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. And instead of deadly science, silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brains, yelpings, breakings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, songs, and laughter. My daughter cheered at that point, and I don't expect you to do that, but it would help at this moment. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, hashtag need to belong. So, um, (laughs) this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is entering the room, and he's blowing the breath of life into his people. He's bringing them back again from death, so to speak, or the curse of death upon all humanity because he himself has reversed this curse from all the way before the dawn of time. But the enemy wasn't aware of this deeper magic. That's why Jesus says in John 16, it's for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good. 
that I'm going to ascend back to heaven. Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, leading to healing again, leading to animated life. The breathing experience tells the disciples that Jesus Christ keeps his promises. Jesus keeps his promises. And now because of the fulfilled promise of the Holy Spirit, God just isn't beside you. It's God dwelling by his spirit within you. One author says that Jesus, the Holy Spirit inside you, is more powerful than Jesus beside you. Because Jesus now is inside you. You have a new identity, a Christ in me identity. Now, he doesn't just come to them to break in and to fill them up. He also, lastly, comes to them to send them off. What happened in the original creation after Adam was filled with the breath of God? Do you remember? What did God tell Adam? He said to to him that he wanted him to be fruitful and multiply and care for creation and steward the resources of the world in a way that reflects the, the love and the authority of God. And the spirit of God being birthed inside of them. Is that a regeneration moment, as theologians call it, a moment of salvation? I don't know, maybe. At the very least, it's a moment where they begin to break through into a brand new way to God themselves. They begin to relate not only to themselves in a new way and to God in a new way, but to the world in a new way. They see themselves as, like Adam, agents of stewardship, stewarding the resources that have been given to them, that have been birthed into them for the glory of God for the shalom of the world, the wholeness, the completion of humanity. That's what Jesus is doing when he gives them this sending. He says in verse 21, as the Father has sent me. I want you to hear that. Just as the Father sent me, I also send you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What's happening there? Jesus is transforming this group, just like he's transforming you and I in this community, from a group of frightened, confused individuals into a community of love, into a community of forgiveness, a community that receives the peace of God and is extending the peace of God, the shalom, the inbreaking of Jesus Christ's kingdom into all of the world. Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. How was Jesus sent? What did he do? Conservatives tend to think that Jesus only went around preaching sermons of morality. Liberals tend to think that he primarily focused on just the healing of systemic issues and and individual problems. The gospel of grace says that Jesus was doing both. It doesn't limit it to neither one. Because when you read the gospel, what are you reading? You're reading Jesus Christ revealing the face of God and removing all the faulty paradigms that we tend to put him in. Life is transcending reality. 
the life of God. When you read the Gospels, it blows your mind. I watched one documentary about a guy who, who was a former atheist, and then he said, you know, I, I tended to think that Jesus was just like, another, like some cop until I read the Gospels, and he was a, he's a former hippie, which is amazing. He just says, I just was blown away that Jesus is just so cool. Jesus is revealing the face of God over and over again. He's showing that the Father is both strong and compassionate. That God gives life to all who accept his way. God takes the initiative to alleviate suffering and to heal the human condition. And think about this. Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Many of you have been or are part of a startup. And you don't just let anybody represent your startup when you're going public. You want the best representatives, the most, the most, the, just the best people that you can send. But Jesus is sending, he's basically saying, hey guys, I'm back uh, 50 days from now, I'm going to ascend back into heaven. Pretty soon, you're the face of the organization. I, I have so much confidence in what the Holy Spirit's going to do with you, I'm out. Pretty much you got it from here, right? And they're like, uh, we're just stuck in this room, afraid of what the Jews are going to do with us. But this is the immense amount of confidence that Christ has in the Spirit of God dwelling within you, dwelling within his community. Jesus is showing his disciples that their responsibility is both terrible, terrifying, and beautiful. That we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, sent into the world to love people just as Jesus loved, to give our lives for them just as Jesus has given his life because each person in this world matters simply because they've been made in the image of God. And if the disciples are to become like Jesus, they will liberate people from violence, from hatred, and from the barriers of sin, and from addiction, and from enslavement to sin finding our value in some other cosmic kiss. And those who welcome Jesus and his disciples will welcome him. They'll enter into the community of love. But the barriers of fear that they face, they're, they're, they're big. And the reason why they're to take this message, they're to be filled, is because uh, one, one author says this, spiritual formation is the process Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus for the sake of the world. Oftentimes, we want to enter into that process and do the process ourselves on our terms. But just like them, God enters into our deepest fears and says, guys, I know you're afraid. I'm going to empower you, but I'm going to send you out into the very fears of the unknown that you don't want to enter into because I'm going to use your life there to bring healing to this world. That's this process of change that happens in us. And it's always costly. Why? Because notice the words there. They're not only to uh, explain the way of God's forgiveness that all people should turn back to God, that healing starts with him. They're not just to explain it. They're to offer the embrace of forgiveness also. When Jesus uses this phrase, whoever you forgive will be forgiven, and, and uh, all of that sort of language, it doesn't only involve God's forgiveness. It means that we're to offer forgiveness in, as well. 
See, in the most basic and simple form, forgiveness, according to the scriptures, is absorbing somebody else's debt, and it's always costly. Some of you in here are struggling to forgive others who have wronged you. And why does it hurt so much? Why is it so hard to forgive? It's because sin is likened to debt accrual. When someone wrongs you, they owe you. And when we forgive somebody, what are we saying? We're saying, I'm willing to pay your debt. See, neutrality is simply just opening your fist, right? When somebody wrongs us, they they sin against us, we want to strike back. We want to take revenge. Why? Because they've owed us a debt now. It's become costly. We want to strike. Neutrality is saying, okay, I'm I'm not going to strike. But forgiveness is not just opening the fist. It's opening your arms. It's opening your arms to embrace. And a lot of times what we do is we're justifying why we should be able to have some form of of retribution on other people. When you forgive, you are paying the debt yourself in several ways. Forgiveness is always costly. It's always very expensive. It takes blood, sweat, tears. Why? Why? Because when you forgive, you're refusing to hurt the other person directly. And for them to become a community that's expressing the forgiveness and love of God, they're going to need to learn to forgive. They're going to need to learn how not to employ spin on other people, to enforce ill will on other people, playing the tape over and over again about how somebody else has wronged us, refusing to demonize or vilify some other people group in our life. And forgiveness then is granted oftentimes before it's felt. But it's always costly. That's why we need something else, something more powerful in our life. You see, something happens when Jesus comes into the room, when he breaks in, before he fills them up, Before he sends them out, what does he do? He shows them his wounds. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side. Shows him his scars. Frederick Buechner, who's um, a former New England preacher, in his biography he talks about a time when um, his daughter was in the hospital on feeding tubes everywhere. Her stomach, her mouth, she was dying and the Beekners, uh, he is a preacher. He did, didn't want to go to church. And he says, I didn't want to go to church and find someone who could tell me what happened to the Hittites or someone who could parse Greek for me in Hebrew phrases or who could give me their best three points. He says this, we wanted to find somebody who could stand up there and bleed with us. Bleed with us. And when the disciples see Jesus break into the room, what do they see? They don't hear a a preacher who's telling them, stand up stronger, be more moral, go into the world harder. He first goes into there, and they see a Messiah who's willing to stand up there and bleed with them. And that's what he's doing for you today. Jesus is entering into your world. He's breaking in right now into the deepest parts where you have locked up. And he's saying, I want to give you peace. 
Miroslav Bols says that forgiveness often flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified Messiah, for long without overcoming this double exclusion. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to discover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. And this is what happens as we come forward now to the table. In the Eucharist, what do we see? We see Christ coming forward. We see our own ability to be able to be honest and raw about who we are. To forgive, to open our hands and to actually open our arms and embrace towards others. We see Christ coming to fill our lungs with breath so that he can send us out into the world. He can send you out into your place of work, into your industry, into your neighborhood, into your family, into your friend groups, and bring peace, extend peace through the message that you bring and through the forgiveness that you offer. Forgiveness is offered to us as we come forward, we receive this, and Christ's body then becomes this physical, tangible way that we enter into that peace.